Okay, so if you can, if you've got your Bibles, it should come up on the screen. Um, no pressure. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Titus. So you can turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus is in the New Testament. It is with all the T's. So it's next to the Timothys and the Thessalonians. Um, we're going to look at Titus chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 11 to 14. Cool, so it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So, this is from the book of Titus. It's a letter from Paul written to Titus. Uh, and Titus had been, he'd been left in Crete. And his job that he'd been given by Paul was to uh, establish elders, to find elders to put into the new churches there. So through Titus, what you see is Paul kind of giving Titus a blueprint for what to look for in elders, kind of what to look for in their character, in their actions. Uh, and actually, there's a lot of teaching in there for, for Titus to give to the church, to, to teach the believers there about what is correct behavior for them. So if you look at the beginning of Titus chapter 2, if you just kind of scan back, you can see that there's some um, teaching there for uh, the older men, that they should be temperate, self-controlled, sound in faith. The older women, well, they should be reverent, they should be not addicted to too much wine. Uh, The younger women um, should be loving their husbands, staying pure. The younger men should be staying self-controlled and so on. And I reckon if you read through Titus chapter 1 and Titus 2 and then stopped just before the verses that we've just read, you're kind of left with a bunch of um, rules and regulations, do's and do nots. Um, And actually, I reckon you could understandably come away from it thinking that, okay, well, being a Christian is about trying to live up to a certain standard, that we should be doing these things and not doing those things. And I guess that's kind of a misconception that even unbelievers today would have about our faith, that it's about being a Christian, is about what you do and what you don't do. Um, and possibly even for us as believers as well. Some of it, sometimes we can fall into that trap thinking it's about what I am doing and what I am not doing. And as we look at these verses uh, in Titus chapter 2, actually if we look at verse 12, just to begin with, again, you could think that it's about a bunch of do's and do nots. Verse 12 says, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Okay, so as Christians, we are supposed to be saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And we are supposed to be living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Right? Easy. Right? Maybe. Okay, if we're being real, if we're being honest, actually, this is not always that easy. Sometimes this is quite hard. Actually saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions can be a bit 
of a battle sometimes. It can be tough, that, um, whether it's temptations or pressure from other people, whether it's our kind of selfish desires for money or relationships. These things in the world, they kind of fight for our attention. They try and pull us away from God, take our focus off him and put it onto these other things. And actually, but, but then we, we know that God would say to us, be holy because I am holy. So how hard is that? That we're supposed to be living like that, but we know that God would say this. To think, today I am going to be self-disciplined. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I reckon in our own strength, this is impossible. To kind of live to that standard, we cannot do it. But here's the encouragement from verse 12. The, um, the first couple of words there, I think, are a bigger encouragement. It says, it teaches. So the good news is, we have a teacher. We are not expected to be able to do this on our own. Our hope is the it. We have a hope, and that is the it. And more, more specifically, it's actually then responding to its teaching. Yeah? Okay, well, if we look back at a verse, you can kind of see that the, the it that is talking about here, so looking back to verse 11, the it is talking about God's grace. It is God's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It is God's grace that helps us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And that's why these verses are so important, because they show us the big picture. Okay, they show us that it's not about us trying to, uh, in our own strength, live up to a level. Actually, it's all about what God has done through Jesus on the cross, that out of that, that our actions can overflow. It's getting our identity straight, understanding the hope that we have in the future, that out of that, our actions can live in this way. So I want to look, we're going to look at a couple of ways that God's grace teaches us, how it helps us to live a godly life. So if we can look at verse 11, then, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Beginning with the first word then, for. It's a, it's a therefore it's, kind of, it's explaining that those previous verses, the beginning of Titus, about um, old men being self-controlled and older women not drinking too much wine. Actually, it's all there. It's therefore, um, it's because of these truths in these verses. Okay, we can act like that because, of, because God's grace has appeared. So what is God's grace? What is it that we need saving from? Verse 14, we've got to read that as well with this because it continues the thought. It t- explains that God's grace is Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that, he, uh, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I thought about trying to unpack wickedness and um, what is ungodliness talking about here and what are these worldly passions that we face 
I thought about trying to come up with some examples, but actually I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit can kind of bring conviction to all of us. At least I just to you guys, just to you, but to all of us. I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit can kind of bring to mind these things, that we can relate these things to ourselves. But the truth in this passage, the root of our faith, is that before God's grace appeared, we were stuck in our wickedness. We were unable to purify ourselves. We were not God's people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to represent that with a chair. Okay? This is representing wickedness. It's a wicked chair. Okay, just remember that. That's a wicked chair. Um, the problem is that without God's grace, actually before, when we were without God's grace, and in fact now if you have not received God's grace, we need saving. We are still stuck in our wickedness. And the Bible says that actually this is a universal problem. It affects all people. Unable to cleanse ourselves, no hope, stuck in our wickedness. Paul sums this up in Romans 7. He says this little verse, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It's the reality when we're stuck in our wickedness. But he goes on and he says in the next verse in Romans 7, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is the grace of God that has appeared. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, to win us back from sin. We were dead in our sins, and yet Christ brought us back from that through his death on the cross. He didn't wait for us to earn our own way back to him. He didn't wait for us to kind of build ourselves up to a righteous level. Actually, the grace of God opened up a way for us. It made us right through faith in Jesus. And just to look at just another passage that, again, just shows this, this journey that we go on from where we were to where we are now. If we could look at Ephesians 2, and we'll just read the first five verses of Ephesians 2. It says, as for you, this is Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. So God's grace, well, God's grace is that not only are we redeemed from our wickedness, but actually we're also purified in order to be made his people. Not, our, not because of our holiness or our efforts, but because of Christ's perfect righteousness that he gives to us. We were guilty, but now we are forgiven. 
in order to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Okay, so, if you have received, uh, received God's grace, if you have put your faith in Christ, you can have an assurance that God has, God's grace has given you a new identity. You can say that I have been redeemed, that I have been set free. I am no longer stuck in my wickedness. You can say that you are God's people. You are his. You are his very own. You can say that I have been saved. Okay? And this is an absolute foundation of our faith. This is who we are in Christ. No longer are we a slave to sin. No longer are we stuck in wickedness. No longer do we have to live ungodly lives or feel like we're trapped by the world. We have been saved. We have been redeemed. We have been set free from our wickedness. We have been saved. We are his people. And that is entirely true. But maybe sometimes you feel like you struggle to relate to that sometimes. Maybe you still feel like your life doesn't really look like that. Maybe you don't feel completely free from sin. You're still battling against it. You don't feel completely saved. Or you're still kind of going through struggles and you're suffering. And How does this work? Does that mean that God has been unfaithful? That his promises are kind of... Not really completely there. Should we give up and, uh, and go somewhere else? Actually, if we read verse 13, let's not do that. Uh, let's read verse 13 and uh, see another dimension of what God's grace does for us. Another dimension to our salvation. Verse 13 says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, we have been saved. But in some way, we are still, uh, in some way, as we learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, in some way, as we uh, try to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives, we are still waiting for something. We are waiting for more. We have a hope to look forward to. Not just a hope, it says it's a blessed hope. A blessed hope to look forward to. Can you have an unblessed hope? Not sure. Can you have a hope that is not good news? I don't think so. It's a kind of a strange thing. We have a blessed hope to look forward to. I think that's Paul just kind of underlining here. How important this is. We have a great hope. Our God and Saviour, the one who redeemed us, the one who has made us his people, he is coming back. He is going to return. And we're going to see him in all of his glory. So I I think there's a bit of a challenge there for us. Are we keeping this blessed hope in our minds? As we go through this life and we try to live godly lives, are we keeping this blessed hope in the front of our minds? Are we waiting for this? Are we looking forward to it? Maybe we're not even sure what this blessed hope really is. What does that mean, Jesus is coming back? 
Can I look now at just a picture that John has? He has a vision of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. In Revelation 19, there's just a few verses I just want to read about the moment. John sees a picture of the moment that Jesus comes back. This moment that Titus is talking about, the blessed hope that we have to look forward to. So in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, it says... I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is showing the moment that Jesus returns. It's called the great and terrifying day of the Lord. It is terrifying for those who on this day are not his people, that don't have the assurance of Christ's righteousness. It shows the consequences of being separated from God on that day, still being stuck in our wickedness. For me, the thought of standing before God on that day, having to give an account of myself without Christ's righteousness, That is terrifying, having to justify myself before God and say, uh, I am a liar, I have been wicked, I am proud, I haven't acknowledged you, but but I am good at football. Or standing before, I'm not, no, um, <laughs> before Jesus, in standing before, it's not going to justify me, is it? No way. Um, before Jesus in all of his glory and saying, I didn't trust you. I've kind of gone out after my own desires. I've put myself before other people. I've been selfish. I've sought money. I've hurt people uh, I've, through my relationships. I've built a world around me, but... but I took my family to church at Christmas. It's a terrifying thought to stand before God without Christ's righteousness, without the assurance of being able to say, I have been saved. Not through my efforts, through what he has done for me. But for those of us who have received Christ's righteousness, those of us who have been redeemed not by our own efforts or our ability to play football, those of us who are justified by God, God's way of the cross, Jesus, our king returning, is a blessed hope. The one that we interact with, the one that we pray to, the one that we worship, the one that we are dependent on to access the Father, the one who loves us, the one that we try to love with all of our strength, is going to return in all of his glory. And I want to read it now, but if you went on and and read through Revelation 21, it talks about what that time is going to be like for his people. It goes on and it says that uh, 
Jesus is coming back for his bride, his people, his church. It says that God is going to dwell with his people. He's going to wipe away every tear. Uh, there's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more mourning or crying or pain. God is going to be with his people. No more separation. We're going to see him face to face. We are going to live with him. So all those times when life can feel tough, all those times where you feel like you are persevering through trials or you're really struggling to say no to ungodliness or you're, you're, just, you're just battling and you don't even know how you're going to get through the next week, we have a blessed hope. Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, is going to return. The Bible says that we see this now in part. We kind of get a glimpse of this. We see it like through a glass darkly or a reflection in a mirror. But then this hope that we look forward to, we will see it clearly. It's a bit like this. So I've got a picture, I think. Um, that Right now, we see some of his presence. We get to enjoy and experience some of God's presence. We get to see some of the joy of being with him. We get, even now we get some of the freedom from sin. We get to see some of the healing. Sometimes God brings healing to sickness. The Holy Spirit that God has given us gives us a confidence. And kind of like we get to see these first fruits of what it is going to be like. But when our blessed hope arrives we're going to see Jesus clearly we're going to see him as he is in all of his glory there's going to be no more suffering there's going to be no more battling sin we're going to see him and we're going to be with him in all of his glory Romans 8 says that our present suffering is nothing compared to the, uh, the glory that is to come So we are his people. We are going to be with him and we're going to be like him. So this is another massive truth for us to hold on to. Um, That our saviour is going to return. That God's grace teaches us that one day you can say that I will be saved Okay. This, these, both these things are true. We have been saved. We have been freed from our wickedness. But one day, our blessed hope is that we will be saved. And they need to shape our understanding of God. They need to shape our identity. They need to shape everything about us. And as we come back to verse 12, okay, back to that verse that we started on, the verse 12 about saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions, self-controlled, uh, living self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Maybe you still feel like there is a gap. There is a gap between that and my life. Maybe you feel like your life does not look like a godly life. You are still battling against sin and saying no to worldly passions. This verse tells us that God's grace has not finished with us yet. God's grace has saved us, but the encouragement is, it says, it teaches us. Not it taught us, it teaches us. This is present tense. God's grace is still working in us now. 
Are we the finished product? No. Are we still battling against sin? Yes. Has God's grace finished with us? No. It's still working in us. This is backed up by another verse in Hebrews 10, uh, in Hebrews 10, 14. Um, it says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We are now perfect through that one sacrifice. We have been saved, set free from our wickedness. We have received Christ's righteousness. We have been made perfect. But God is still at work in us, causing our actions to be more in line with our identity. He is making us holy. So God's grace has two purposes. It is to save us, but it is to make us more holy. You can know that God's grace is at work in you, and you can say, you can say that actually I am being saved. Right now, I am being saved. God's grace is at work in me. And it is completely about him, about his grace and what he has done. But back to the, uh, the Titus verse 12, just take note that actually is about our response as well. We've got to respond to God's grace. It's us that has to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Whatever that means for you, it's us that has to do that, that has to walk it. It's us that has to live self-controlled, um, self-controlled, what's the verse? Upright and godly lives, right? It's us that has to actually walk that. We're the ones that have to respond to it. The Bible says we've got to, walk, we've got to work out our salvation. Okay? It is completely about God's grace, and yet we need to respond to it. Are there any teachers in here? Any teachers? Anna is a teacher, yes. We have another teacher. Anna is a teacher, yes. We've got a couple of teachers. Maybe you guys can relate to this a little bit. Okay? When it says it teaches us, maybe it's a bit like this. Actually, we've got to respond. Maybe you have prepared the best ever lesson. The best ever lesson. Okay, you've handcrafted every sentence of this lesson to meet the specific needs of every child in your room. This is going to be the greatest lesson ever. And then even actually as you start to deliver this lesson to your classroom full of children... It comes out, you start delivering it, and every word flows into the next. This is the best lesson ever. And you're thinking, great, this is it. Those levels are going to go right up right now. It's all going to happen. This lesson is brilliant. And then as you look around at your class, you see that little Jimmy is playing with some blue tack he found in his ear. Uh, And actually, you send them back to their table, having told them 57 times what to do. Within moments, they're coming up to you. I don't know what to do, teacher. What do I do next? In some ways, maybe it's a little bit like that, that actually God's grace teaches us, but we have to respond. But we can do this now from a position of power. We can know that sin is not the most powerful force in our life. We are no longer bound to wickedness. We don't have to live like that. By God's grace, he has given us his spirit. We are undeserving, yet we are empowered. We are his children. We can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, but only because he helps us to. 
I guess if you take that teacher illustration a bit further and you put yourself in the position of the children on the thing, it's like going back to your table to, to do the work that you've been asked to do and then the teacher coming and sitting down with you on your table and helping you do the work. This is like what God's grace is doing. It's teaching us to live these lives. So just to kind of try and uh, bring it all together to wrap this up, how do we live these lives where we're saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions? How do we do that? How do we live self-controlled, godly lives? I guess you can imagine trying to, do, trying to do that without these two chairs. You're trying to live self-controlled life, but actually your actions would probably be kind of tossed around by the actions of others, what other people tell you to do, your feelings, how you're feeling at that particular moment. It'd be kind of tough to do that. But the challenge of this passage, and in fact, probably the whole of Titus, is about getting our identity straight, knowing that we have been redeemed, we have been set free from wickedness. It's knowing who we are in Christ, that we have been saved. By God's grace, you can say no to ungodliness. By God's grace, you can say no to worldly passions. But because we have been saved, because we have a blessed hope to look forward to, actually, we can live in that now and we can know that one day we will be saved. We can refocus. We don't have to focus in on the ungodliness and the worldly passions. Actually, by God's grace... We can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives because of what God's grace has done for us. If we have received Christ, if we have received this grace, we don't have to focus in on the ungodliness and the worldly passions. Paul says, I look forward, I strive forwards to that goal that God has given me, uh, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. We can respond to God's grace, by grace, to grace's teaching, and we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, knowing that we are being saved right now. This is our identity. We have been saved. We are being saved. One day we will be saved because we are God's people, his very own. Um, we're going to respond in a minute. Um, well, we should be responding now. We're going to... If I could get the band to come up. I'm just going to pray and then um, we're going to keep on letting God speak to us. Um, So let's just pray. Father God, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for what you have done through your son. You didn't leave us in our wickedness. but you gave us your son to set us free, to bring us back into relationship with you, that by receiving him, we can be your people. I pray that for each of us in this room, you would help us to understand your grace more, understand more of what you have done for us, whether that's more of what Jesus has done for us, understanding our identity more. I pray that we would, we would learn more about what it means to be your children. I pray for anyone that is still battling or they feel like they're right now they're in this battle against 
uh, about saying no to ungodliness and maybe it feels like it still has a bit of a hold on them. I pray for freedom in your name, Jesus, by your grace that they would be able to say no and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives because of what you have done for them. And I pray for us as a, as a church that, that uh, we would grow in confidence. Uh, we would grow in knowing what you have done for us knowing uh, more about who you are and who we are in you.